If you want a title before I begin talking to you about what I have in mind for you today, I've been preparing this morning in my home, it would probably be, who is the captain, the author, the chief, or the leader of your personal salvation? I think you know the answer to that in advance. You might also entitle it, if you would like, who is your spiritual father? There's been a great deal of information given people in the, and forgive me, those who don't like me to refer to what I call the parent organization. That's the only way I know to talk about the organization with which I have had to do all of my entire life. Actually, by three different names. Four, actually, different names. When I was a young baby boy, the organization that was behind my father was the Church of God, Seventh Day. A little later on, the organization with which he worked and he became ordained was the Church of God, Seventh Day, the Oregon Conference. And then finally, by the mid-40s, and it was not until the mid-1940s, my father and a group of people in Eugene, Oregon, incorporated, basically brought about only as a defensive effort on his and their part to protect the physical church facilities. And I remember that very well, and the documentation in the state of Oregon is there to prove it, that there was not a, any necessity for them to become an incorporated entity until a squabble over who owned that church building out there on West 8th Street in Eugene, Oregon. And at that time, in the late 40s, he incorporated as the Radio Church of God. Now, for the many years that followed, including the initial purchase of the Big Sandy properties, the development of the tabernacle buildings up there, the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles, all the way until the mid-1960s, and finally, it was not, believe it or not, until 1968 that the name was changed from Radio Church of God to Worldwide Church of God. I have felt all along that those entities were all a part of the Church of God. I feel that some of them still are. Now, unfortunately, many people want to go back and to revert to another organizational entity of a part of the spiritual organism, which is the Church of God, because they become disenchanted or angry at the human leadership. And in so doing, they make the mistake of abandoning a part of the truth of God that they have learned. And a part of that truth of God, which is certainly one of the major points, and I'm not going to go into that today, that's not my subject, but certainly a major point, are the annual Sabbath days, the meaning of the Passover, the days of unleavened bread, the meaning of the day of Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and so on. So we have many people who are, quote, dropping out, turned off, and who will revert to the Church of God's seventh day, which means the doctrinal knowledge and information that was within God's church in 1934, but has never gained or grown or improved or advanced in new knowledge from that time to this. Now, the Bible says to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. If we know to do good, if we know the great, beautiful picture of the plan and the purpose of God, we should not abandon that plan and that purpose, no matter how turned off we get at a human leader. Let's go to the book of Hebrews right quickly, the second chapter, and notice, I won't read all of this, but he's talking about man and angels and about Jesus Christ and how he was made a little lower than the angels for a great purpose. Verse 9 of chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, 
in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The margin says leader of their salvation. To whom must you be joined? To whom must you be attached? Whose hand must you take and hold? Who is it who is going to finally save you when all is said and done and the judgment day is here? To whom can you turn laterally and say, yes, but he did that, or she did this, or they wronged me there, or someone else hurt my feelings over here, or I read an evil book that said so-and-so did that. And that's why I quit observing some of what other men might even call in the Sermon on the Mount, the least parts of your law, Jesus. I gave up on some of the things I'd known for 20 years, like the marvelous observance of your Feast of Tabernacles, even though you came back down and you stood on the Mount of Olives in the very first edict you sent out to the world. Is Egypt, you come and you observe the Feast of Tabernacles. All nations are going to send advanced emissaries and you're going to keep my feast. I wonder if those excuses are going to stand up to the king of the world, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. Does sin plus sin cancel sin, as I've asked so many times? In chapter 15 of John, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch that in me bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. That is, he will prune it, trim it, he will dig it, fertilize it, water it, take care of it that it bears fruit, that it brings forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you, because the word of God does purge, it does cleanse. You got a dirty mind, you got dirty thoughts, you got bad feelings, you got emotional and psychological problems, read the Bible. Sit down and read Ephesians 4, read Colossians 3, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Get on your knees and read through some of the Psalms. Make them your prayer. Do that for an hour utilizing the very word of God as your words in a prayer, and you'll find out you have been cleansed, that you have been purged, that a, the part of the word of God flowing through your mind has chased out of your mind a lot of wrong and a lot of evil thought, maybe against other people, hatreds, jealousies, animosities. You are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me. Now, you know, people by the thousands have been told for two years all sorts of meaningless cliches that are just as meaningless as the empty rhetoric and the campaign slogans of those who are running for the presidency of the United States. You must stay with the body. Sure you must. The body of Jesus Christ. But a physical, material body, a collection of people meeting anywhere, whether it's a group of hippies meeting on the courthouse steps for the purpose of bringing down the establishment, whether it's a group of anti-nuke demonstrators meeting at Three Mile Island, whether it's a group of the young Democrats or the young Republicans, or whether it's a group of people who want to worship at the Church of Satan the Devil in San Francisco, or whether it's a gay rights movement in Dade County, Florida. You can have a body of believers who believe in any person, male or female, any spirit, good or evil, any ideal or idealism, whether it's right or wrong, and that body, that collective body of believers can be moving in one direction for a certain stated purpose, and they can begin to become kind of attached together. They can develop a very deep esprit de corps. They can develop a feeling of association, of mutual dependency. They can develop a kind of a siege mentality. The quickest way to get a riot out of some of these people is for police to overreact. 
when you get a group of people marching down Main Street with signs and chanting, down with the establishment, if you shove one of them, you punch him out, they all erupt because now you've done something hideous. It's push, shove, push come to shove, wham. Action, reaction, overreaction, zoom, you got a riot. And so when these bodies of people gather together listening to the rhetoric of their leaders who can use false cliches of every type to get them into a siege mentality, it is a truism of human associations and relationships that under great trial, under great stress and great threat from without, you tend to band ever more closely together. Absent the threat from the Arabs, absent the threat to their very national existence, the Israelis would have torn themselves apart. There is probably no nation on the face of the earth any more deeply divided with the various racial groups that are there because they have intermarried quite extensively. And you can see all the way from the very dark for the Yemenitish Jews, the Moroccan Jews, you can see Libyans, you can see Jews from all parts of the Middle East, you can see European and Russian Jews, a few American Jews, different colors, and yet you always see that the, the predominant racial characteristic will be that of Judah, of Simeon, and of Levi, and you can see it in their faces in the noses and the hair and the shape of the body and so on of the Jewish people in Israel. Now, only a minority of them are ultra-Orthodox. These are the ones that came out of the Ukraine in the steppes of Russia with the black felt beaver hats, the little ringlets on the men. And if you, as a young American or, you know, a middle-aged American woman, whatever age, were to go to the holiest of all of the Jewish places, the Wailing Wall, and walk along there with your head uncovered and with short sleeves on, especially if some young girl would show up in a miniskirt at a place that these Jews thought was holy, you know what they'll do? They'll pick up a stone right there on the road and throw it at you and try their best to hit you. Now, a very tiny minority of the Jewish people in Israel today go to the synagogue. It's basically an irreligious country. Politically, Begin is always walking on eggshells and broken glass. He could be out of there just virtually any time. There is no more argumentative, screaming, gesticulating body than the Israeli parliament called the Knesset. But when the Arabs attack them, it's like a bunch of brothers in a family having a terrible battle. They're kicking and screaming and yelling at one another and pulling each other's hair out. And the neighbor kids jump in and take sides and begin beating up on the older brother. So all the younger brothers take this neighborhood kid and just absolutely send him to the hospital. And you've seen that type of thing happening before. That's the way the Jews are. Now, because of a false story, totally false, false in the words of the attorney general, false in the words of those people who walked in and put the parent organization in receivership, false in newspaper article after article. What is false about it? Church versus state. The state is for the church on behalf of people within the church who wanted to get an insidious, satanic clutch of a vulturous-like organism that was growing like a cancer to rip off, to milk, to take away, to whatever you would say, to use the word pilfer, misappropriate, to steal, or whatever church money, church properties, and the very vigor and the power of the church organization called the Worldwide Church of God. There never was, from the very beginning of the time of that entire ugliness, any attempt by the state to interfere with the ecclesiastical process, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of doctrine, the conducting of Bible studies, church assemblies of any type. They made no attempt to interfere. They just wanted to see some financial records. And now, not only has the whole church organization and this siege mentality grown closer together, but they are ready now to do practically anything false leaders tell them. How could it happen? Could it happen here? I want you to see 
by turning to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, real quickly, just a few things that some of these contemporary congregations that existed in the first century living side by side had as a problem within their local congregations. At Ephesus, if you read the letter to the church at Ephesus, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 7, you will see that they had false apostles and those who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans of this so-called St. Nicholas, whom we find today in the guise of Santa Claus, which is only a shortened form of St. Nicholas, was a doctrine that is best voiced, I guess, by a story that I heard from a man in this church who told me on an occasion that there was a time when a young lady, who herself was supposed to be a member of the Church of God, had told him, that Jesus loves us, and God is love, and God wants you to experience love, and that the love that there, ha there, there is between different people here and there is a good and a wholesome thing, and that God knows that we have these pulls of the flesh, he knows that we have these temptations and these appetites, and that if we're ready to just love one another, well, that's good. God wants us to love one another. You know, in just a few minutes of that kind of an argument, if you've had just enough liquor under your belt, the setting is just right. The people are just right. And everybody is just right in the right place, and they look pretty good to one another. And as the old song says, they all look better at closing time anyway. I suppose something pretty horrible could happen. I can see how people could take the New Testament and certain of the scriptures of the New Testament, certain of the statements of Jesus Christ about love and God is love, and actually twist it around to where they can take the commandments of God against coveting, against lust, against adultery and fornication, and make that into a righteous, religious experience. And that's exactly what the Nicolaitans were doing. Now, in a moment, you will see where that originated. It is so ancient, it is one of the most ancient forms of religion that has ever been on the earth. And it is one which is one of the great religions of the Western world today, and it began not as a competing organization which then came marching over the horizon and attacked the true church of God and destroyed it. It began not as a competing, proselyting church organization, finding its roots among the masses of the pagan populace and simply emerging over the course of centuries as the great Roman Catholic Church. No. It began within the first century membership of the church of God of what Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the head. But enough people wormed their way in from the outside, and just as Paul said to the Ephesian elders, enough people became subverted from inside that the combined pressure of both of them worked to fully, completely take over the visible church so that the body of Christ, the spiritual organism, still attached to Jesus Christ, became the invisible, the scattered church, the few frightened, beleaguered people, a fear afraid for their lives and their properties, and the visible church, owning the properties, having the power, having the name, having the hierarchy, and having the priesthood, was the false church, so that you find historians who acknowledge that there was a lost century. Now, we know that John wrote at approximately 92, what we're reading right here in the second and third chapters of Revelation. This is approximately 92 A.D. Jesus was crucified and ascended to heaven in 31 A.D. So this is about 61 years after that time. Now, by the time of the close of the canon of the New Testament, John's writings, and the next 
writings of any type we can see in either profane or what we might call, well, there isn't anything that is not profane because even the documents of Eusebius and, and Arnobius and Justin Martyr and Polycarp and some of the others called the anti-Nicene, meaning the pre-Nicene fathers, meaning the so-called fathers of the church. And these were apostles, like Polycarp, for example, was a student of John. And these men and their writings are contained in a volume, a set of volumes, called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Anti-Nicene meaning before the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. The Council of Laodicea and Nicaea 325 and 331 A.D. is the next time you have any historical documentation about what the church believed, what it did, what was going on within the church from the time of the closing of the canon of the Bible of 92 A.D. Historians have said, it is as if a veil descended, like a curtain descended, over the true church of God at the close of the canon in 92 A.D. When it is lifted, much later, you see a completely different church in many respects from that which disappeared from history near the close of the first century. It was different in many respects. It was different in that the holy days were gone, the weekly Sabbath was gone, and the man who was then over the Roman civil government had given an edict that Christians shall not be found Judaizing by observing the Passover on the 14th of Nisan, nor the Jewish Sabbath day, and Sunday, and keeping Easter, began to be imposed upon the church at the edge of the sword. Now, how did all of that happen? Here were people, just like you and I, living people in the first century, who sat there inside a congregation in the hands of a man that we've heard of many, many times, because the parallels are inescapable, who is called Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them over in 3 John and verse 9, and receives us not. But there were other people sitting there listening to him who were, quote, on the fence. There were others sitting and listening to him who believed in him implicitly, and who were converted people, but who just became confused, who just became deceived. What confused them? What deceived them? What led them to look to Diotrephes instead of to Jesus Christ? How does that happen? It's happened again. It's happening right now in the body of Christ, the Church of God, where people are looking to a man. Let's notice the parallels that these churches underwent. They had this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, or Itanes, a filthy doctrine which said, the more you sin, the more God forgives you, therefore the greater is God's love. Now. At the church in Smyrna, they had the same similar problems. It said, verse 9, you are rich, even though I know your physical poverty, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, I take that meaning physically as well as spiritually, and I'll come back to that a little later in something I want to tell you about, because it was a person masquerading as a Jewish leader of the New Testament church who was a Samaritan and who was not a Jew but who said he was a Jew, who said he was an apostle, and was not a Jew, but was a Samaritan, and a practitioner of the Babylonish mystery religion, and got his way within the ranks of the New Testament Church of God. Now notice, it also said that they would be tried, the devil would cast some of them into prison, and they would have to be faithful unto death, and then finally they would be given a crown of life. The Pergamus church had very similar problems. It said in verse 13, I know where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And Antipas had already been killed by some of these people, but it said in verse 14, you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And we'll come back to that in a moment. What is the doctrine of Balaam? We're going to see not only the doctrine, we're going to see the ritual that went along with the doctrines of Balaam to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel 
to do two things, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication in a religious service. And they also had what? The same problems Ephesus did, the same problems Smyrna did. You have there those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Going on to Thyatira, you see that there was this woman Jezebel, verse 20, who called herself a prophetess to do what? The same identical things that was a part of the doctrine of Balaam. So she was a high priestess of the religion of Balaam and taught my servants, that is, people who were converted originally, New Testament members of the Church of God, she called herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she, as Ivan Pan in Greek numerics has it, willed not. She determined not to repent. Now, I won't go into the historical analogy or the type of this, because the type is the actual origin of the Roman Catholic Church and the throwing into the sickbed of the Roman Catholic Church during the day of the Seljuk Turks advance across Turkey. They got all the way to the gates of, of Vienna at one time, which is why the four great patriarchs of the Eastern world finally simply were no more, leaving only one of the five great patriarchs, and that was when Rome finally gained the ascendancy, and that wasn't until about the, I believe it was about the seventh century, but I have to go back and look again. The, the story that the Roman Catholic Church has had one successor of the so-called Petrine theory of the primacy of Peter, and that Peter was succeeded by one man who was succeeded by one man is a total lie. There were five absolutely equal great patriarchs called metropolitans of the church, and it was merely through attrition and through warfare that the four in the eastern part of the world were overcome by the Seljuk Turks, leaving only Rome. But that's another story. I'm thinking now of a literal woman living right there in the city of Thyatira in the first century. Behold, verse 22, I will cast her into a sickbed, as it should say in the original, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children. So as a result of this fornication within that church body, there were illegitimate children that had been born. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he that searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give every one of you according to your work. And to the rest I say in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan. That's interesting language to me, as I've mentioned before, about a year ago, I think. That this doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, this business that was brought into the church by these false Jews, who were not Jews, but probably Samaritans, and who were Babylonish mystery practitioners, was called the death of Satan. The worst possible, rottenest possible doctrine that could be practiced by anybody. And that's what gradually got in to the church and actually just phased the really believers out until they were outside in the cold in a small, scattered, frightened group. And the big visible church gradually became the church of Satan the devil, the synagogue of Satan. Chapter 3, under the angel of the church of Sardis writes, he said, Be watchful, verse 2, and strengthen the things that remain. I have not found your works perfect before God. Wasn't a great deal more told then, except that there were a few names that had not, verse 4, defiled their garments. It doesn't really say in the letter to Sardis that they had the doctrine of Nicolaitans or that the doctrines of Jezebel or the doctrines of Balaam had affected that church congregation, but you get the feeling that it certainly was universally spread throughout all of those cities in that part of Asia Minor. In Philadelphia, it was still the same problem. Verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. I will make them to come and worship before your feet. Then to the angel of the church of Laodicea, he wrote, 
didn't say very much about that, but he called them lukewarm, and they said, verse 17, that they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing and didn't know that spiritually they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, and that means righteousness through tribulation, that you may be rich and white raiment, that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So they were blinded, and then again he said, If I love you, I rebuke you, I chasten you, be zealous and repent, and to him it overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So Ephesus had false apostles and the doctor Nicolaitans. Smyrna had the synagogue of Satan, Satan's seat, and false Jews. Pergamus had the doctrine of Balaam and Nicolaitans. Sardis was told to repent because some of them had defiled their garments. Thyatira, I passed over, was Jezebel and had the same doctrine. Philadelphia was where the synagogue of Satan and false Jews were. And Laodicea was called lukewarm, and yet they claimed they were rich physically with material properties and goods. This is the church of God of the first century. And what were the problems you see in the church? Now, I believe that the body with which I have been associated for all of these many years has been a body that has gone through some of the most agonies, uh, some of the most trauma, traumatic agonies that you can imagine. And I mean from the word go, from the time I was a little baby boy, I remember it. The leadership fighting each other, the very reason why my father left the Church of God's Seventh Day went with the Oregon Conference. The reason why he began as the Radio Church of God in a fight with the people over who owned that little building that was built out there in West 8th Street in Eugene, Oregon. Later on, when the college was first started, it was a fight with the faculty, a fight with some of the earlier student body, people leaving the church, attacking the church. There were people that came in there and stole the church blind. There was a man that ran off with all of our tools. There was a student that was stealing money out of the mailbox. There were students that would get all the way to actually teaching the freshman Bible class and then turn around and two or three or four of them leave the church and attack it. I don't know if there have been six months of peace. And anybody who characterizes the Church of God from 1934 until a couple of years ago as a church that was tranquil and was always growing and always peaceful and had no problems is either crazy or just misinformed. They don't know what they're talking about. We always have those problems, and today there are great and dramatic problems that are becoming like a stench in the nostrils of the entirety of the United States of America. Big newspaper ads from Boston to San Diego, from Seattle to Orlando. Mr. Attorney General, I will fight you until it is an absolute shame to see what is happening and what is emanating out of what should be the headquarters of God's church. Well, how in the world could that have come about? In a pastor's report, and in the worldwide news some months ago, there was one of the most astounding things that I have ever seen my father write, in which he said that he was actually the one and the only apostle of God for this time, which he has said repeatedly for the past two to three years, and which in the earlier years he denied. For all the many, many years that I remember going to the Feast of Tabernacles up in Belknap Springs and at Siegler Springs up here in Big Sandy, he would deny publicly that he is an apostle. He would never take that title. In about 1977, when he began to think about being married, I wrote a letter one time, a very powerful letter, about the church fasting for the sake of the work and how the work was in desperate trouble. My dad decided to supersede my letter, and so he wrote a letter after my letter and commanded that it be read in all the churches. 
and the headline of the letter, and I still have it at home, from the one and only apostle of God for the church for this time and so on, just lots of words about this great apostolic office, and gave an edict that this is to be read in the church. Back in the 1960s, Dr. Ernest Martin did an extensive research paper on a man called Simon Magus. During that time, for years, my father preached over and over and over again about the lost century that I just talked about. For years at the Feast of Tabernacles, for years in the ministerial conferences, we all had a tremendous dose of the lost century and how Simon Magus came in. Well, all this information about Baal Pethor, about Peter and Potter, about the transferal of Simon Magus into the place of Simon Peter, who was never in Rome, as we can see, even by reading the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, that Peter was not there. He was never there. He didn't die in Rome. The church knew that. We were taught that. We saw the research materials. We read about it. And everybody knew exactly what was the meaning of the word Peter, Pethor, or Potter, or, as we say in the Latin language, Peter for father, that it equals father, and is a title rather than just a name. When I saw in writing, only about a year ago or less, my father claimed, Peter means Peter, which means father, and when I saw in his own writings, only months before that, the words primacy of Peter, it nearly blew my mind. To believe that my dad could have come so far to actually embrace and to adopt a doctrine that he condemned as the Babylonish mystery religion of Satan the devil only years before that time. And to see the church boasting today that it is working hand in glove with the Catholic Church, with the United Council of Churches, with other church organizations my father has called satanic counterfeits. I just look around in amazement and I say, how could this have happened? Well, briefly we know, Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus told Peter, Thou art Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. We've been over that hundreds of times. And I know I had my Bible chain referenced always, and back in college we taught that to all the student body to go directly to Matthew 18, 18, where this business of the keys of binding and loosing was reconfirmed upon all the apostles, all the disciples, and it was said, Where any two or three of you are gathered together, there am I in the midst of thee, and where any two or three of you will agree as touching anything upon this earth, it will be bound in heaven. Thus show it that it was not just to Peter that Jesus gave the keys of binding and loosing powers, but to the ministry. And that was preached, that was known, that was accepted as the truth of God through the church from the earliest inception of the reestablishment of some of the so-called ranks, which I don't think they are, but at least offices within the church in the mid-1950s until just about two years ago. And that was still true. It is really still true today, though it has been abandoned. But I want you to notice John and one, and verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 42, because many people pass this over. This is actually much more important than the other statement, because believe it or not, the Apostle Paul referred to Peter by a different name, which has a Babylonish, a, a Chaldean origin, but was a nickname, just like a movie star, a famous star called Rock Hudson, or Rocky Gra uh, Graziano, whatever his name was. Jesus gave Peter a kind of a nickname, and it is not, never was, and never will be a title. This is when he had found, or Simon, who, who was sitting there, uh, his brother Andrew ran up, and Andrew, you know, was one of the disciples of John the Baptist, and he said, I have found the Messiah. Well, as I will show you in the book, if you get a chance to read it, 
And I think it's very clear when you look at the harmony of the Gospels, there were several occasions, no doubt, where Jesus had met Peter and Jonah and Zebedee and James and John and Andrew and other people of those two families before. But here, Andrew finally took him, verse 41, said, We found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, verse 42, he said, You are Simon. Now, the word Simon is only a name. It comes from Simeon, and Simeon is one of the tribes of the three tribes that make up the house of Judah. Judah, Simeon, and Levi. So Simon is merely a name that was dubbed on to him as a progenitor of the race from which he came. Simeon or Simon. Synonymous. You're Simon, the son of Jonah. You will be called Kephas. It's not Cephas, but if you look into the exhaustive con uh, concordance, it is spelled with a K for pronunciation. You will be called Kephas which is by interpretation a stone. Now those are the words of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What is the interpretation of the name of Peter? Peter is only the Greek version of the same identical word. Simon, who was called Peter, is Simon or Simeon, who was called in the Greek Peter, or who was called in this word, which even though it was a Greek word, was a transliteration from an ancient Chaldean word comes from Kephas and is pronounced Kephas, meaning a stone. So Jesus gave Peter a kind of a nickname and said, you're going to be called Rock from now on. Your name is Stone. Now, if we go to Ephesians, the second chapter, Colossians, the first chapter, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, and we look at the government of the church and we find that all the apostles and the prophets were like equal stones, and I've told you that so many times before, of which Kephas was only one. And all the eleven were equal, as were the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, not Peter, not Kephas, but Christ being the chief cornerstone, what is Simon Peter's name? He's called by the Apostle Paul in his writings, Kephas. Let's turn to the first part of the book of Galatians, very instructive book, Galatians, the first chapter and see something which I don't think would be admitted by my dad today, the way he used to preach it himself before. But at least we need to understand it in the Church of God today. The Apostle Paul is basically justifying his apostleship, and he is showing that contrary to rumors that have been spread around these people in southern Galatia of Iconium and Lystra and Derby, that he was not Peter's messenger boy, that he was an equal. And so he began saying that he had received the gospel directly from Christ, verse 12, not by man, but directly by the revelation of Christ. And he was exceedingly zealous, he said, above many equals in his own nation, verse 14. Immediately, he said in verse 16, I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now, verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. Now, that doesn't mean over me. It means before me in chronological sequence of time. I remind you again that an apostle is not a rank. The word apostle is not an awesome word. It is not a big word. It isn't a great word. It is not a word which inspires awe. It is not a title meaning great office. It means one cent. It just means commissioned, sent. So it does not have any great connotation, no matter how it might be abused or oft misused or used in vain repetition to make people think that it is an awesome title. It merely means one cent. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to those who were those sent before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. Then after three years, now 
That was a long period of time, and actually the Apostle Paul apparently had just about the equivalent of a four-year college undergraduate education with Jesus Christ in person in the deserts of Arabia. I know that a lot of people don't like to think of Christ coming back down to the earth much after he ascended to heaven, as you see in the first and second chapters of the book of Acts. And they said, you know, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven and saying, Jesus shall so come? And of course, I don't believe in the Mormon doctrine that Jesus Christ came over to this continent and appeared to a lot of people and taught a lot of people in the United States. I do believe with all of my heart that the Apostle Paul told the truth that day after day, this great being from heaven would appear to him and sit down and actually teach him and expound and talk that Paul had a chance to ask question after question after question, that this took over a course of three years literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of the deepest kind of teaching in the Word of God, where Paul could ask questions in Job and, and, and Proverbs and Isaiah and Daniel, and Jesus would expound it and explain it to him, and he got a fantastic education. Now, in one way, he got a far superior education than did Peter or any of the other apostles. Why? Well, because their education was seeing and observing Christ in three and a half years when they were still carnal. And they didn't get a lot of what Jesus did and said. When they were converted, a lot of that came back, but it couldn't not all have come back. Here was the Apostle Paul knocked down on the road to Damascus, blinded, given the Holy Spirit, baptized, and then taught, after he had received the Holy Spirit, for three years by Jesus Christ of Nazareth personally. So, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days, but other the apostles saw I none save, one exception, James, the Lord's brother. Then it was another, notice chapter 2, verse 1, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. So here was Paul, an apostle, ordained of God. He had already been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went up and he saw Peter. Peter didn't lay hands on him. There is no record of any laying on of hands until much later by a whole group of people, as we would see in the book of Acts, if that was part of what I had today. But Paul was called directly of Jesus Christ, and he was called separate from, apart from, the church hierarchy of the ministry in Jerusalem. And then he went and appeared to them as an equal. Now it says in chapter 2, 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He's arguing that because, of course, the doctrine in Galatia was you had to go back to circumcision and some of the rudiments and elements, and that's beside the point that I want to bring out. And that, notice verse 4, fantastic correlation with what we read in Revelation 2 and 3. And that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Question. These false brethren brought in privily to spy out. Did the false brethren know they were false brethren? Well, yes, obviously. Did those who brought them in know they were false brethren? Yes, obviously. So that's some outsiders who are brought in by some insiders to spy on the so-called little people who are sitting there in their faith and trust, with their eyes wide open, hoping to be fed, in order to subvert these people into doing something which would basically lead them away from what? Lead them away from the leadership of the Apostle Paul, but ultimately from the leadership of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and supplant that leadership with a man. 
that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, what was this? Here we are looking at the Jerusalem church, looking at a sort of a Johnny-come-lately coming in here, saying he is standing right there, and perhaps a few voices are raised. There are some rather salty arguments going on here. He said we would not give place. We wouldn't listen to them. He would just say, no, you're wrong. And the apostle Paul stood fast for what was the truth. But of these who seem to be somewhat interesting language. You know, people can use body English. They can use habits of dress and certain mannerisms of voice and gestures and pretend to be pompous and pretend to be a great leader. Of these who seem to be somewhat parenthetically, he said, whatsoever they were, it really doesn't matter to me because God accepts no man's person. Then continuing, these who seem to be somewhat, for they who seem to be somewhat in conference, as if there was a, a clique here, or a certain schismatic movement, a certain group of people who had already agreed on a certain doctrinal point of view, who seemed to be somewhat in conference, added nothing to me. But contrary-wise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, another parenthetical statement, I'll skip verse 9, and when James, Kephas, and John. Notice the order, because that same order of the mention of names is ordained of God Almighty in the placement of the general epistles of your Bible. James, Kephas, and John. The book of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Peter is placed after James. That same order is placed very carefully in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem conference where James makes the final binding decision and Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and other people were all equal, simply having their input, expressing their opinions, but James made the final binding decision. Notice Paul calls him here Kephas. And then he goes on to say, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave unto me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen as they to the uncircumcision, as they to the circumcision, only that they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed, for before that certain meaning Peter came from James. Is there any way in the good green earth you can misunderstand the meaning of that simple statement? He came from James. Came where? He came to Antioch. From where? From Jerusalem. From who? From the leader in Jerusalem. The Lord's brother, the one who wrote the book of James. He came from James. James sent it. Peter was under James. He is mentioned as being second under James. There certainly was mutual respect and equality, and yet from the standpoint of the apostle at headquarters, James was the one. Now then, I want to just turn to Acts the 8th chapter. I'll try to hurry along real quickly here and bear with me for just a few more minutes in case you're looking at your watch. We got a little bit of a late start. I won't read all of this because you've read it before, but this is the account where Simon the Magus, who used sorcery, verse 9, from Samaria, gave out that he was a great one, to whom they all gave heed, the least of the greatest, verse 10, saying, This man is the great power of God. He had bewitched them. He saw Philip. He tried to buy an apostleship. But that was not the last of Simon Magus, because he appears in profane history many, many times. Listen to some of these things about Simon Magus. Justin Martyr, in his book called Apologies, 1, section 26, said that Simon Magus came from Gittin, or Gitte, in Samaria. He was a Samaritan. Josephus says that Simon Magus was a dependent of Felix, remember, before whom Paul appeared, and that he was a minister of black arts and vices. I don't have time to go all the way back to the Magi, 
But actually, the Magi go clear back to ancient Chaldea. We could go into the book of Daniel. We could read to you how when the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, said that they all had to bow down at the psalteries and the sackbuts and all of the various instruments, that the soothsayers, the astrologers, and the chromancers, the ones who were the uh, Chaldeans, it said. Now, the word Chaldean and the word Magi by that time were an absolute synonymous word. Magician and Chaldean became, in Hebrew, to mean the same thing, because it was a priestly tribe, apparently of Zoroaster, who believed not only in black arts and black magic and so on, but in the science of the day, in all sorts of the use of herbs and, and maybe even mind-inducing drugs and things. It was a certain kind of a, a pseudo-science together with the black arts and with demonism. Justin Martyr said that Simon Magus went to Rome during Claudius' reign, attracted a great deal of attention there by magic, wizardry, and soothsaying, and finally became worshipped as a god. And finally there was a statue erected, and this also is, is stated by Justin Martyr, between two bridges in the Tiber River in Rome, and the inscription on that statue was S-I-M-O-N-I, Simoni, D-O, D-E-O, Sancto, S-A-N-C-T-O. Simoni, D-O, Sancto meant Simon, holy God. Simon Magus became worshipped as a god, and many of the Anti-Nicene Fathers repeat the fact that that statue was between those two bridges in the Tiber River. It was Eusebius, much later, who claimed that it was Peter who came to Rome. It wasn't Peter. It was a man named Simon the Pathor, Simon the Father, Simon the Holy God, who took the title of Father, and then in the Latin began to be called Pater. Now, there is no more etymological connection between the Greek word Peter, which comes from the word petros, meaning pebble, and the Latin word potter, or pater, which we find in Spanish as padre, which means father. There is no connection whatsoever between Greek pebble and Latin father. And my dad knew that 10 or 20 years ago. But here, less than a year ago, he wrote in major publications of the church that the name Peter is a title and means pater or means father. That is absolutely untrue. Now, I love my dad and I want to show him honor, but I have to say, when he departs from the truth of God, I will continue to preach the truth of God no matter who, family member or anyone else, says something that is contrary to the truth of God. Our Savior Jesus Christ says, Call no man father on this earth. You're never to look to some human being as a spiritual father, but only to Jesus Christ as our high priest, as we can see in Hebrews, the third chapter. In just a moment, we will that. But so, Peter in Latin equals father, and we find it in like fatherhood, patriotism, P-A-T, and so on, padre. And no connection whatsoever with the Greek word petros, it means a stone. Jerome, in his book called Opposition, chapter 4, verse 14, says Simon Magus masqueraded as, quote, listen to all these blasphemous titles, the Word of God, the Paraclete, and that is actually the Holy Spirit, the intercessor, the Perfection, the Almighty, the All of Deity, and had a paramour, Helena, who was a beautiful woman, whom he called the First Idea of Deity. Now, I don't want to go back to Numbers 23.8 to get into this thing of Baal and Balak and so on. I won't have time to go through Jude, the whole book of Jude has to do with this, Second Peter 2 has to do with it, but I want to show you, at least in Numbers, the 25th chapter, something about where this whole thing of the Peor, Pathor, Peter, Potter thing came from, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I think all of you know 
Let me turn to Numbers 25 while I'm saying this. What is one of the slang terms for male genitalia? It is not John. If you want to know where it came from, you're finding some of those origins right here in the Bible, the Word of God, because the ancient Baalim, Baal worship, was the worship of sex, of proclivity, of, of uh, pro progenity, uh, rather, of the uh, sex act, and so on. Now here, in the 25th chapter, verse 1 of the book of Numbers, Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom of the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, or Baal Pethor. Now, Baal Peor was a high place, one of the most famous ones of ancient Babylon. The city was right at the foot of the hill, and the high place was on the top of it. And the anger of the Eternal was kindled against Israel. And the Eternal said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people, and hang them up before the Eternal against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Eternal may be turned away from Israel. And you believe this? God was so angry. Now, why? What were the rituals? Remember what we read in Revelation 2 and 3. Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, right while they were making this edict, something happened. One of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among, among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. It only took one thrust to kill them both. What was the religion? Baal, which is ancient Baal worship of the mystery religion of ancient Babylon, Pethor, Baal Pethor, Baal the father. And what was the ritual of that religion? The same ritual that they were being taught in the first century, centuries and centuries later, the same Babylonish mystery religion was creeping into the New Testament church. Jezebel then was teaching them to do the very same thing. God hated it. He would put them to death right on the spot. Thousands of Israelites were killed in trying to expunge that from the people of God. You can read the rest of it. It's quite interesting, and I won't take time because I see that I very much over-prepared today. I do want to turn just to a couple of quick scriptures in 2 Peter, the second chapter, and then I'll try to conclude. I do want to get, want you to get this one. In 2 Peter, the second chapter, it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately will bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. Now listen to that very carefully. Any person who is taught and who accepts the doctrine that by joining himself to a man, by clinging to the hand or the name of a man, by remaining loyal to a, loyal to a certain organization in a political sense, and does not cleave directly to Jesus Christ of Nazareth is denying the Lord that bought him. And it says in verse 2, and I'm seeing it happen, not a few, not the scattered few, it says, and many will follow their pernicious ways. For two solid years I have shaken my head in amazement as I have seen that tens of thousands follow a pernicious way. The greatest ripoff in the history of religion is happening, and the tens of thousands are following along. It just blows your mind. 
Now look at this next one and think of these dozens of ads, more than a million dollars spent. Think of 60 Minutes, think of Newsweek, of People Magazine, of Time Magazine, of hundreds of newspaper articles, of the U.S. Supreme Court, nine appellate courts in the state of California, dozens of television and radio interviews. By reason of the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. What had been a wonderful way of truth, marvelous colleges, a beautiful way of life, gaining really rather a remarkable reputation, even in communities such as Big Sandy, where we were surrounded by Church of Christ, Methodist, and Baptist, people who began to be loved and admired, a way of life that had other people seeing when our children were sitting in a restaurant, how did you train those children to be so, so beautifully uh, uh, well-trained and quiet and happy? Now, all over the United States, becoming a stench, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall these false teachers who creep in, who did creep in in the first century, shall do what? With feigned words, insincere words, words they don't mean, do what? Make merchandise of you. That means rip you off. That's a powerful scripture with what has been happening to the body that has been the body of Jesus Christ, and I believe the broad majority of them still are. I just think they're being deceived. Through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. And then is a scripture that shows if God didn't spare angels and demons, he is not going to spare these people. And what are they, verse 10, chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government. And it says in the book of Jude, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Read Mr. Dart's article in the current issue coming out now of Watch Magazine of what happened among those Jews during Claudius' reign in the city of Rome about religious freedom, could you lose it? Now, notice in 2 Peter 3 and verse 13, I don't want to read all of that, but notice he appeals to them finally in verse 17 saying, Beware, lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Open the book of Hebrews briefly. It says in the 13th chapter of Hebrews, I'm sorry, the 3rd chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews, the third chapter, and beginning in verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. And that's what I say in this sermon today. Consider Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is our apostle and high priest. Do not consider any man. Learn the lesson at long last that you cannot get into the kingdom of God by being associated with any man. I was going to make this announcement at the beginning, but I thought I would save it until now. A young lady who once sat right here in services not so long ago as a guest of the uh, Larry Brookerson family went down in an airplane early today. A DC-3, in which she was a stewardess, crashed in the ocean on the way to the Bahamas from Florida. Apparently only 12 bodies have been found, none of them were yet alive. That was what the telephone call was during the Bible study. And the Brookersons wanted us to pray that if she is alive, she will be found. If that young girl, out there, away from a the telephone, away from the computer, 
away from the post office box, away from her friends and her family, down at sea as the result of a crash of an airplane, was not joined directly to Jesus Christ, then that would be a very grave matter indeed. It doesn't matter whether you are drowning in the bottom of a well, whether you are falling out of the sky in an airplane, whether you are killed in an automobile wreck, or whether you are lost absolutely by yourself in a black night in some inhospitable desert area, and you die of starvation and exposure, if you are joined to Jesus Christ, you are going to be in his kingdom a split second later, so far as your own consciousness is concerned. If she was joined to Jesus Christ, she's going to wake up in a split second. She's going to think, oh, what is happening? Hear a loud roar? Feel nothing, really. And one instant later, wake up and be in the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with how many other human beings with whom she was in touch. Who had she gotten to know? With whom was she in good favor? Whose computer had her name and address? Who was sending her literature? Who was she loyal to? Who did she respect? That doesn't matter. If she was joined to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, she will be in the kingdom of God. I believe that with all of my heart, and though my human physical father is my father in a physical sense, he is not my high priest, he is not any longer my spiritual boss, for he has removed himself from that position when he totally threw aside his own son in favor of those who say they are Jews and are not, but preach different doctrines for different reasons, know not the word of God, and who know not the Lord Jesus Christ.